Welcome to MUFON Canada's UFO Primer. I'm Dave Palachuk, National Director of MUFON Canada and Executive Producer of MUFON Canada's podcast. MUFON is the world's largest and oldest civilian UFO investigative and research organization with members in many countries around the world. Our number one goal is to be the inquisitive mind's refuge seeking answers to the most ancient question, are we alone in the universe? Simple answer is no. Do you have UFO reports to share, armchair UFO investigator aspirations, or want to train and join our investigative team, MUFON is here for you. Will you please join us in our quest to discover the truth? What do we know after 50 years of MUFON? One, UFOs are real. UFOs represent advanced technology not from any country on planet Earth. Two, we are not alone in the universe. We never have been. Three, according to the data we collect, our universe is teeming with life. And four, the UFO phenomenon is worthy of scientific study because tremendous breakthroughs will result if we allow our scientists and engineers to do so without fear of ridicule. Each episode will feature a guest host along with our very special guests who are willing to disclose their knowledge on ufology. Hope you enjoy the information you hear in this podcast and use it to help decide if you believe. Embrace the future with Move On Canada. Hello, viewers, and welcome back to another Move On Canada UFO Primer podcast. My name is Dave Palachuk. I'm the National Director of Move On Canada. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about our experiencer research team and how we help experiencers. Uh, for our guest host today, we have our own uh, Chad Wanless, who is a field investigator and our ERT manager for Move On Canada. Chad is going to introduce our special guest who's going to discuss experiencers and how MUFON Canada helps people who have actually been, the old term, abducted. Chad, take it away. Hi, I'm Chad Wanless. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Kathleen Martin. Uh, she is the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, and she is the uh, leader for the ERT uh, Experiencer Research Team. How are you doing today? Doing well, thanks. Nice to be with you. Good. So how did ERT get started? Well, the Experiencer Research Team began in 2011, and MUFON has a long history of interest in the study of UFO abductions, uh, as far as back as 1985. Bud Hopkins, the late great pioneer, was uh, the head of MUFON's UFO study group. Uh, later, an ethics committee formed to establish ethical guidelines for the investigation of UFO abductions. We also had Dr. John Mack, the Harvard psychiatrist, uh, who studied experiencers, uh, who passed away, unfortunately, in 2004, I believe it was. But uh, they are big names who have been... Uh, part of MUFON in uh, bringing forward the study of individuals who have had these kinds of experiences. Uh, when I was asked to take over, uh, Clifford Clift was the director, and we, prior to that, had had a small three-member committee called the ART. It formed in 2009 or 2010, I wasn't able to find specifically uh, when, uh, but there were only three of us. And our function was to find people who used hypnosis and to vet their credentials because there had been a lot of controversy about the use of hypnosis with experiencers and whether experiencers were actually being led uh, into believing they had an experience that they didn't really have. Uh, we had investigators who were not qualified, uh, who were in a position where some people were harmed because they didn't know a lot about psychology and they didn't know a lot about hypnosis. 
So our team actually began in an effort to see that people who provide these services are properly vetted professionals. They're certified or they're licensed, they specialize in this, and they have the needed training. So that was the first thing that we did before I took over uh, for Les Velez, who was my predecessor. When I took over, I wanted to be in a position where it was not just a do-nothing job. Uh, I thought that MUFON needed to undergo many changes and the board of directors agreed. We did not have protocols for the investigation of UFO abductions. So the first thing I did was to ask Denise Stoner, who was a member of our team, to join me. And we spent a year working with a variety of consultants on developing protocols for the investigation of alien abductions. Denise and I also did the first study on experiencers, and uh, this was an attempt to identify commonalities that experiencers share that are not common in the general population. So what we did is we developed 45 questions, and those questions were based primarily on academic studies and their findings. And then we had 75 participants. 25 of those were not experiencers of UFO contact or abduction. They were just members of the general population. And 50 were in the core abductee group. And we found these individuals through the mutual UFO network. We didn't just go out to the general public and say, if you think this happened, please take part. We wanted to be fairly <laughs> certain that these individuals did have contact. And we were able to, through 45 questions, identify 23 commonalities that experiencers share. When we completed that, MUFON asked us to develop a questionnaire that would go on the ERT's website so that experiencers could take the questionnaire and speak with us. And our job would be to uh, give them assistance, to give them some support within our ability. We're not mental health consultants. Uh, and just to, to get them going on the right track because so many people just live with this fear, with this uncertainty, with this trauma. And when they've attempted to, to speak with other people in the past, it has resulted in criticism or ridicule. And that's the worst thing that can happen to somebody who's already suffering from trauma. So that was the beginning of the ERT. Very quickly, we had more people uh, contacting us than Denise and I could handle. And I was becoming very frustrated and just overwhelmed. And so I spoke to the director at that time. I think it might've been Jan Harzan. And he said, ask more people to join your team. <laughs> you know, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? But uh, I didn't want to take that on by myself without having approval from the executive director and the board of directors. So we did start adding members to the team. Some of our first members were people like Dr. Michael Austin Melton, who spent his life as a psychotherapist, uh, working with uh, people who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. He was retired at that point, so, but he was an excellent person to have on the team. And as more and more people learned about us and what we did, they asked to join too. And so we would talk with them and, and find out what kind of experience they had working with experiencers, their level of knowledge, and we would invite them to join us on the team. Well, in 2015, we had grown to the point 
where I could no longer manage this as alone as the director. And Craig Lang had been the assistant director, but he had no time to do anything because he was working a full-time job. Plus he was very active in MUFON in his state. He held an office there. So uh, we ended up asking Dr. George Medich, who had joined our team to become the assistant director. And I was so pleased to have George. George was a professional baseball player before he became an orthopedic surgeon. During his downtime, he was going to medical school and he spent his career as an orthopedic surgeon. He had an interest in astronomy, in UFOs and in alien abduction and had some knowledge at the time. He's certainly become an expert since then, but he ended up uh, taking over the day-to-day -day duties that I had because he loved doing that work and I didn't. I wanted to focus on research and on working directly with experiencers in the capacity that I had and also on writing and speaking to the interested public about what we have learned. So, you know, this is pretty much in a nutshell what we have done. Uh, and today we have 42 specialists who are members of the Experiencer Research Team. They wear two hats. They are trained field investigators with experience who specialize in alien abduction phenomena. And they also are kind people who can speak with experiencers to offer some emotional support and to be non-judgmental listeners, because that is so helpful when people can finally get this off their chest and not be ridiculed. So we, in addition to those 42, we have five mental health consultants. All of them are psychotherapists, psychologists, or psychiatrists. We have two medical doctor psychiatrists on our team as well. And they work as consultants to MUFON field investigators who are members of MUFON's experiencer research team and to members of the team who are speaking with experiencers and wonder uh, if there is a psychiatric issue uh, that is coming into play. And so we can go to these mental health consultants for advice because it's a little too much for us to handle on our own. They will tell us what to say after they have evaluated it to determine whether or not they think there is indeed a psychiatric problem. We also have two paranormal specialists. These are individuals who uh, have an in-depth knowledge of the paranormal in addition to UFO abduction. Denise Stoner is our primary paranormal specialist who uh, can serve as a consultant to members of the team when something occurs that we believe is not really UFO abduction related. It doesn't uh, have the modus operandi. And uh, we have a new member of the team too, who is a long-term paranormal specialist and a priest and a psychoanalyst. So he wears many hats actually but he knows individuals all over the United States. I'm not sure about Canada. I, I'll have to check on that, but uh, that he can recommend experiencers go to, and he can set up a private relationship with experiencers uh, to give them consultation and uh, if they have a negative entity attachment, not a UFO experience, he knows how to remove these things. And uh, so there's confusion over this as well. 
In addition to all of this, we have uh, two research specialists, Dr. Don C. Don Derry, who is a retired professor of psychology at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, and uh, also Lester Velez, who um, headed up a team who did what was called the Omega-3 uh, study, an academic study, through the Mutual UFO Network with Dr. Robert Lelouve leading that, which delivered some very important information about experiencers uh, to MUFON. And so that makes 50 team members. In addition to that, we vet uh, individuals who work with experiencers on a, um, as a profession. These are uh, mental health people who are licensed and working with experiencers and, the, and you know other people in the general public as well. Uh, and also uh, hypnosis practitioners, hypnotherapists, we want to ascertain that these people are well qualified. And we send out a disclaimer that protects us and MUFON saying that we are not recommending any of these individuals. This is just a list that we have and they will enter into a private 4K relationship with these individuals who do this for a living. So <laughs> kind of a long explanation, but that's what we do. Okay, thanks. Yeah, that was uh, very thorough, very thorough. And you, you uh, checked off a, a few of the items I had written down. Um, for me, the biggest one that I wanted to ask was, um, I'll use this analogy. Uh, when we watch, say, like a World War II movie, um, as a person who's never been in war, you find it interesting and fascinating to watch. But for someone who actually has been in the war um, or a war, it's a completely different experience. It's traumatic, it's life-changing, all these things. And it's the same with um, experiencers. Um, we could watch a sci-fi movie or documentary and, and think, oh, it's really interesting, but what is it truly like for the person experiencing it? Um, how does it affect them? How are they when they finally reach out for the first time to talk to somebody, somebody outside of their family? Maybe they've tried to talk to someone in their family and have been rebuffed or been told, oh, grow up or, um, you know, all sorts of horrible argumentative things. So what is it like from their point of view? I know that the skeptics say that they're attention seekers, and I know that's not the truth. But what is it like from their point of view when they're trying to reach out and get answers to what's been going on in their life and what might have been triggers in their life to make them realize that this has been happening? Could it have been memories from childhood that have popped up or was it a, an event that just happened that made them realize there's something going on? Oh, well, there, there are lots of questions in that question. Um, the first thing I want to address is absolutely. You know, most people who have these experiences, whether they ultimately find out they were positive or not, develop trauma as a result of just not knowing, of knowing that maybe they're missing, have missing time after they had a close encounter with a UFO. And uh, there's the lack of knowledge and what they might have heard elsewhere that comes into play. So when you watch a movie or even when you go to a support group or a MUFON meeting and you've had these experiences, you tend to be holding a lot of mo emotion inside that you have not released. It's so important to release that because it can cause illness if you don't. It can have a huge impact on your life. You know, some debunkers say these people are just attention seekers 
or uh, they've just watched a show and, and now they want to be part of this wonderful group. That's not true. I mean, you've, I'm not going to say for everybody because I have actually found some people who are hoaxing, but it becomes very, very clear that they are and what their true motives are. For most people who are having these experiences who have come to me personally, and I can say that there have been a, probably at least 2,000, maybe more over the past 30 years, uh, they are apprehensive. They're a little nervous about even talking about it. They fear ridicule. They fear that their identity might become known and the impact it will have on their personal lives. They know that people like my aunt and uncle, Betty and Barney Hill, never intended to go public with their experience. They would talk to scientists, they would talk to investigators, and they would confide in friends and family members. But it was a violation of confidentiality that carried their story to the public. And it had a major impact on their lives and on my life, too, <clears throat> because I was with them going through the emotional trauma of having that made public. When Barney was holding important positions, he was uh, a leader in the NAACP locally and regionally. He had been appointed to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission's State Advisory Committee. He had a job in the U.S. Post Office. And my Aunt Betty was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. Those people would never have wanted to carry that to the public, but it happened. And people know about that, and it's happened to others too. So they want to be certain that they're talking to somebody who they can trust, who they can have confidence in, that that person is not going to violate confidentiality, and that that person is knowledgeable about what they have been through. It's so important. And they feel so relieved afterwards just to be able to speak and not to be ridiculed. That's generally what I encounter when I work one-on-one -on -one with experiencers. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, that's that's definitely all very true. Um, now, you've men mentioned trauma, PTSD. Um, for those that are, might be listening in and never heard of PTSD, it stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, I know that uh, Bud Hopkins had was probably the first person to realize that this was affecting experiencers, and he actually called it post-traumatic or post-abduction stress disorder, I think of what it was. And he had a list of symptoms, and they were very similar to the list of PTSD symptoms. Um, could you describe what the PTSD symptoms and the, his symptoms were? Well, you might have uh, an awareness that something happened, that you have this tension built up inside your body that causes you to experience uh, anxiety, uh, heart palpitations. Uh, it can change your behavior. You can become ill. You can have uh, panic attacks as a result of this. Uh, those who uh, have UFO abduction syndrome, as was identified in a study that Dr. Don C. Don Derry, Dr. Stuart Appel, and Bud Hopkins worked on, and uh, also a clinical social worker named Ted Davis from uh, New York. What they uh, discovered was that there were certain characteristics that abductees share. And they use the term abductee then, so that's what I'm going to use. That was the term they used in their study. And they actually uh, developed 
a study that we have used on the team uh, where they developed uh, what is called the American Personality Inventory. And that inventory is based on uh, a psychiatric measure, the test that is given. And, uh, but this is a specific kind of test that is, has been developed for experiencers. And it identifies those who have the emotions, the emotional makeup of people who have had real abductions. And it differentiates them from those who do not have this event level trauma. And that's different. Some people can be nervous about what might happen and think that they might have had these experiences. But on the API, we discover that they in fact have not. They are what you call simulators. They have a lot of knowledge that they've gleaned from books, from talking to others about this, maybe from movies they've watched, but they're not abductees, UFO abductees. And then they identified a third category and those are members of the general public who have very little knowledge about UFO abduction and uh, certainly do not believe that they have been. So Bud Hopkins contributed a great deal to our understanding of what abductees go through. And uh, I'm very grateful that he came before me and both with MUFON and in the kind of research that he did and I do. I knew Bud well. In fact, uh, Bud helped to train me in the use of hypnosis in specializing in working with experiencers. I stayed at his apartment in New York for a weekend. I spoke with his group and uh, he hypnotized me and we went through uh, all of the steps that he used when he speaks or spoke with experiencers. And of course, he ran a support group for experiencers too. And he did all of this out of the goodness of his heart to help people. He did not profit from these groups that, that uh, he helped. He was an artist that's, uh, and a famous artist. That's where he um, earned his living. But it was after a UFO sighting that he had and other people that he met who had had close encounters and abductions that he became interested and interested in investigating those people who just like in a MUFON investigation, uh, who had had these experiences. So uh, in a nutshell, that's what he did. And I'm so grateful for people like Bud and Dr. Don C. Don Derry, Stuart Appel, and Ted Davis. Absolutely. Um, Bud Hopkins was definitely the pioneer in this field. Um, I believe his book was published early 80s or late 70s i can't remember which i think the early 80s but i could be wrong okay um yeah he was basically checked. the pioneer he up till that point you know um we had all these contactees we didn't know much about what was going on with abductions who was doing it why he was the one who um coined the term missing time he was the one who who started using hypnosis most regularly. Like your aunt and uncle were the first hypnosis uh, people on this subject, but um, he was the, the first person to publish a book um, going through multiple or doing it for multiple people. Um, he was the first one to discover the hybridization program, mm -hmm. and we don't know or understand what that's for. And there's all sorts of theories that are, that go from um, malevolent to benevolent 
um, or benevolent to malevolent um, in how people react to why are they doing this? And um, I was wondering what your thoughts on this hybridization is and why they might possibly be doing it. That's a difficult question. And I have to proceed what I say by saying that none of us knows for certain. And different researchers have a variety of opinions. For example, Dr. David Jacobs believed that the hybridization program was to create human looking extraterrestrials who he thought would supplant humans on this planet. So his was probably the most negative point of view. Others uh, such as Barbara Lamb and Leo Sprinkle, Dr. Leo Sprinkle, who are longtime researchers as well, view it as a more benevolent act that uh, humans are uh, being upgraded in a sense, that it is uh, perceived as a way to make sure that we don't become extinct. In the tests, in the studies, and I've, I've worked on three academic studies now, and I really like to rely upon the information I received on my studies instead of, or the studies I've participated in, instead of coming up with personal, maybe biased opinions um, based on just the experiencers I've hypnotized and the information I acquire from that. So I'm a little bit different. And I've worked on the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Encounters on their experiencer questionnaire with a, a number of academic uh, people who have PhDs, who are social scientists. Uh, we had 3,200 participants in all. I was a research consultant on that and helped to develop some of the questions on phase one of the study. And then from 2015 to 2018, members of the ERT and I, including Dr. Don C. Don Derry, who uh, headed up phase two of our study, attempted to identify again the commonalities that experiencers share. We had open-ended questions as well. So we were able to receive input on what was occurring or what a wide variety of uh, test takers. Uh, with For MUFON study, we had 516 uh, questionnaires that we ended up using after we eliminated the hoaxers and those who didn't complete the questionnaire. We had uh, 116 questions on that. And so uh, what we have been able to uh, acquire in terms of knowledge about the hybridization program is that there appears to be a number of things occurring. Uh, these hybrids, uh, appear to go through various stages in the medical research. So the human DNA is used uh, and there are artificial gestational tanks on craft and human DNA and this non-human DNA is combined. And you might say, how could that even be possible? We don't know. Is this a gene splicing? Are these masters at genetics? Or are they us? Are they coming from the future? Did they live here on our planet at one time and end up ending, ended up leaving? So as you can see, there are all sorts of ifs and questions. But aside from uh, these various stages of development from uh, ETs and humans who, hybrids, who have the appearance of being more like greys and who are telepathic. Along the stages of development to those who have, look more human but have wispy hair 
and some gray features and are still telepathic but might have voice, they will eventually have voice to the stage where they look fully human and have a voice. And what I've been able to discover in my research is that it appears that a human mother and a human father are often used as the parents. Both are experiencers. And what occurs is that an embryo is, is taken by the extraterrestrials and there is a genetic manipulation done. And through that genetic manipulation, the human that is born to these parents and reared in a human family has special characteristics uh, that are not common among your general human population. The researcher Mary Rodwell from Australia has done a great deal of research into this. So, and she wrote the book, The New Human. And so I uh, recommend that anyone who is more interested in, in reading about this uh, would look at, at Mary's work and purchase her book. And, uh, but the characteristics that we find are some of these children who are be, being born to experiencers have uh, high intelligence, they're telepathic, they're psychic, they have uh, telekinesis, where they can actually move objects or have an impact on things like radios and televisions, and uh, microwave ovens. Uh, they uh, are, are spiritual. Some of these children are healers. And some of them even speak in a special kind of alien language, I guess, uh, who and, and heal other humans. So is this a bad thing to build a better human? The ETs, according to the majority of experiencers who took part in our studies, indicate that the, not, the ETs, especially the greys and the human types are very concerned about human survival and about uh, our nuclear weapons and about our stewardship to our planet. They have told experiencers over and over again uh, and it, it goes back to Bud Hopkins' work where they were shown screens where they saw devastation, where they saw destruction to our planet. Uh, but these telepathic messages are being passed to experiencers who took part in our study and more and more information is being given to longtime experiencers. And so, uh, it appears, in my opinion, now after years of research and thinking that this was horrific in the beginning, it appears that there is a benevolent purpose. And I don't believe that they are doing this because they want to supplant humans. I think that all humans are probably hybrids to a certain extent, that we have grown and we have developed from the beginning of human time on this planet. And that this is only another genetic upgrade to carry us forward in our evolution. That makes complete sense. It just kind of popped in my mind, I'll throw this out there, is that uh, um, by doing so, they're hoping maybe to take us as a warring um, uh, self-centered species into a species that's more um, more appropriate to, to joining the galactic neighborhood. Um, so they don't have to worry about will we turn on them and fire our nukes into their planets in just sheer worry and fear of what could they do to us. So you never know. But um, And I 
I also yeah. like that uh, that idea idea that maybe they're us from the long future. Yeah. That would explain why they're hybridizing. Um, but you know, one of the problems that I hear because I've been listening to this, Kathleen, this is very informative and educational. Um, the governments, the bad portions of the governments, are seeking these people out for bad things. Like the overall end of all this might be great for the human race with the stability and keeping you know, the human race alive and progressing. And Chad, as you just said, a little bit you know friendlier, benevolent to the to the world we live in, and try and resol- resolve conflict and hate. But we have governments around the world who are seeking these people out, and I I'm, I'm the firm believer that all the the things we see on tv you know that hollywood comes up with are taken from real cases i mean there have been shows where these people have been shot uh, sought out and used for negative purposes and war-like purposes and i believe that's really happening in real life so you know how do you get governments to stop this to stop using these people and capturing these people and it, it's really bad and and there's there's documented cases of, of people who have all these abilities, and but they're being put to uh, put to bad use. You know, there is an inherent problem with humans that, and those who are the heads of government and the heads of military, are only thinking about uh, attacks on humans uh, being uh, having their military capability uh, overcome. They're thinking about uh, an invasion. If we look into human history, if we look into ancient texts and to ancient art, it appears that these non-humans have been here uh, for a very long time. One of the- And they've definitely been here in great numbers since the 1940s. Yeah. One of the experiencers, uh, one of the first experiencers um, being on the ERT team myself that spoke with me, uh, she said that uh, they were, they told her that they had been here visiting us doing this um, aggressive research program, Um, not aggressive, but intensive research program for at least 350 of our years. Mm-hmm. And your aunt Betty had reported um, seeing the star chart, which goes back to what have they been telling the experiencers that gives us a, a glimpse of their their universe? So star charts, how long they've been here. One person recently uh, told us about being in a class where he was taught how to to use a type of um, telepathy. Uh, uh, but not to read people's minds and their thoughts, but to he- feel their emotions. Uh, empath, I think is the yes. right term. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then I know one of the experiences I've been dealing with had reported that um, the question was, he put to them, why is it dark in this room? And why are your eyes so big? And, and the, the gray said, we're from a orange dwarf planet is what your astronomers, or orange dwarf stars, what your astronomers call it, where your sun is a yellow dwarf star. And the light output is not as bright for our, our star as it is yours. And that's why we have to have larger eyes. So what kind of things have, have experiences reported being told? Well, I, first I want to say that um, scientists worked with my Aunt Betty and in the uh, information that she was given, it was the same as what you just gave, not necessarily that it was an orange dwarf star, but that uh, they lived in a darker environment, a different kind of environment than we live in. And that's why there were these physical differences. And, you know, there are various types of entities, too. They're not all the same. Uh, So what are experiencers told? By the greys, they are told, we planted your seed on this planet. And we come back periodically to assist in your development. By human types, some human types, they say, We lived on your planet hundreds of thousands of years ago. And there was an environmental collapse where your planet 
could no longer support us. We had the technology to move on. And we did. We moved on. We found another planet in another star system that we live on now. But now we travel throughout the galaxy and that we have also planted seeds on other planets. And we come back from time to time to check on you and to assist in your development. Nobody says we're gonna take you over. Everybody says we're going to assist in your development. So, you know, my friend and co-author on three books, Stanton Friedman, used to say that uh, we're a pr primitive society whose main uh, occupation is tribal warfare and they are concerned about us. They uh, have come because they want to quarantine us on this planet so that we won't take our brand of friendship out there, which is pretty much what you said, Chad, about our taking our nuclear weapons out to them. We don't have the right attitude. We're still in of a mindset where we're looking at how we can exploit something else how we can go to another planet and mine that planet, how we can set up colonies on that planet uh, without any talk about doing anything kind to assist in the development of maybe primitive life on another planet. So, you know, that concerns me. And I think that Stanton was right about that as well. But uh, getting back to experiencers, the vast majority say that the concern is that we will destroy ourselves. And they have seen that happen elsewhere. They don't want to see it happen on this beautiful planet, that we're a young civilization. And we have to go through many growing cycles. And as we get to certain points in our development, we risk destroying ourselves or destroying our planet. We have to see now if we can make it through this period. Some of these groups say that they will intervene this time, but they don't want to because they know the impact it could have on the human species to have a technologically developed species with different values of a different kind who communicate telepathically, who look different than us, who are technologically superior. What kind of impact would that have on our, what we think is a modern society, but they think is a primitive society? We know on our planet that when a technologically developed society went into an indigenous area, it was very disruptive to the people who lived there. They were exploited, they were killed, they developed diseases, they uh, lost their culture, they developed uh, social and emotional problems because they no longer had an identity, a culture, um, an ethnicity that they could identify with, they were told they were no good. And these highly intelligent, highly evolved species do not want that to happen to us. And so they tell experiencers that they are not going to make their presence known. They try to work quietly, surreptitiously, without causing too many problems for humankind but in attempting to teach the people that they work with to make this planet a better planet. That makes a lot of sense. Um, if I remember back, uh, Bud Hopkins' book, one of the um, ladies that was hypnotized in there described something, de described her just like that, where... Um, there is some kind of celebration of some special protection for earth being placed among the, the different civilizations out there. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely I, I agree with you on that one. Um, 
I just, could I add one more thing? Yep. Uh, I'm not saying that all extraterrestrial groups have our best interest in mind. Um, some experiencers, and it's a small percentage, uh, are having contact with uh, people, mostly uh, a type of reptilian, not all reptilians, but a type of reptilian who uh, view our planet as a planet that they own, that they can mine. Um, but the benevolent groups of ETs say that they're attempting to hold that at bay. Interesting. Um, that brings up another question, which was um, that I was just going to ask. Um, how many different types of ETs have experiences reported? Um, what, what are their different characteristics? Well, the most prevalent are the greys. According to our studies, free study and MUFON study, free said the human types first, but then they uh, did not look at the greys as an overall group. They divided them into separate groups. What we find is the short greys and the taller greys, um, three and a half to four feet tall, and five to five and a half feet tall are the most prevalent groups reported by experiencers. Next are the human types. And there are many different types of human types. Um, they tend to be more benevolent, but some one, one type appears to work with reptilians. So I can't say that there is, they are as benevolent. Um, so, we have that. Then we have an, an insectoid type. Some people describe ant people, other people describe mantis people, and they tend to be working with a small type of gray. And we don't know if they're a type of android or not. A lot of experiencers believe that they might be androids and not sentient beings. Um, so you have that. And then there are the reptilian types. And so there are a variety of reptiles um, from a benevolent type who is also working in a hybridization program to a draconian type that is always described, as far as I know, as negative. These are the ones who might rape humans who might use humans in a bad way, who might not have any compassion for humans, but they're in a, a small percentage. And as I study this, I like to look at the work being done by others as well, by people in the paranormal field, by people who are light workers and healers who remove negative entity attachments. And there seems to be an overlap of that kind of negative reptilian with attachments. And some of them have attached to light workers. Uh, so uh, I'm not even sure that they're extraterrestrials. Um, I, I seriously doubt that they are. Some people think they live under the earth and are interdimensionals. Oh, I don't have the answers. Nobody does. That's, that's speculation. Um, but those are the main types. Of course, then we have the hybrid uh, species that experiencers see on craft. And we have in much smaller numbers, uh, other entities that have been reported, tall whites, tall goldens, tall blues, short blues. The blues tend to be nice, described as benevolent. Um, and then we have uh, people who believe that Bigfoot is uh, actually an interdimensional that is seen oftentimes around uh, craft. So maybe they're really not from here. Maybe they are part of the... Uh, what the extraterrestrials do, uh, that too, we don't know. There are so many questions we have without answers. And I guess, you know, that's why we continue to do our research, but that's what I know. Okay, wow, that's very, very informative. Uh, it reminds me of one 
the 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 term blue reminds me of um I believe it's in the eighties there was an incident in Russia where a UFO landed in the middle of a um large field surrounded by school children and um they made one child disappear, but these creatures were described as being extremely tall, uh something like twelve, fifteen feet tall, blue skinned. They had a head that was without a neck, three eyes, um completely uh uh different description i've only ever heard of them once so uh it makes me wonder you know are ex the experiencers they will um have contact with a number of different species but how many other species are there that are not actively um, abducting people but are still visiting us to study us mm. that's a good question um there is a book that is going to be a MUFON publication. Uh, it's going to be released later this year, but uh, I had the opportunity to read it yesterday and to comment on it. And uh, this person includes something like 80 different species uh, that have been reported on this planet. So some of them might be just here to, to study from a distance. Okay. So it turns out we have about five minutes left. Um, I guess some of the bigger questions we have left is um, with these studies, um, have they been published? Um, are they going to be published? Uh, where, would we, where would we find them? Let me begin with MUFON's experience, abduction experience or research um, project. Uh, that study was done over a three-year period uh, with uh, MUFON experiencers. It was a, a two-part study, phase one, done by several members of the ERT, and I headed that up. And the second, phase two, done by Dr. Dancy Dondari and myself. Both he and I presented on our findings at the MUFON Symposium in uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey in 2018. You might be able to purchase our uh, lectures at MUFON's website through MUFON's store. Our input into those studies, I wrote a 50-page research paper as well. And that was published in uh, MUFON's uh, symposium proceedings in 2018. So yes, it has been published. It has not been published in an academic journal, probably because freeze results were published just before we finished ours. And freeze results were published in an academic journal. And also um, a book that I contributed to that has been published by free it's called Beyond UFOs, the Science of Consciousness and Contact into Extraterrestrial Encounters. And also a book that has been written by myself and three other members of MUFON's Experiencer Research Team. It's a MUFON publication. So MUFON profits from the sale of this book. It's called Extraterrestrial Contact, What to Do When You've Been Abducted. And there is an entire chapter that I wrote on social research studies and the findings and the findings, the major findings of our three-year study are in that book. Excellent. That is really, really good information. So we are almost out of time and I have one last question, Chad, that I'm going to throw in uh, to wrap this all up with. And I'm pretty sure we're going to have you back, Kathleen, because we're going to get a lot of feedback and we'll look at all the comments and see what we've missed and what other people want. But if a person puts in an experiencer, places a MUFON case report, what should they expect to happen? What is the very simple process that they're going to go through in order for us to help them because that's what it's all about. So if you'd like to explain that, what is it that Chad is supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> put you on the spot there jad uh yeah let's let's wrap up with that please explain the process so our viewers can understand uh, if they are experiencers and been holding off what they're going to go through if they decide to put in a report 
there are two avenues and you can take either one. The first one is to go to MUFON.com and up in the top right corner, you will see file a report. And so you uh, click on that and you will come up with form one, which is the uh, questionnaire where you'll fill in your contact information, uh, briefly state what occurred, uh, and you are then given the opportunity to uh, take the experiencer questionnaire, which becomes part of that investigation. And uh, you will also be asked to fill out a couple of forms pertaining to uh, your memories of contact. And so when that happens, you will have a MUFON field investigator uh, who might be a member of the ERT because we're having more and more people who are experienced field investigators and members of the experience research team doing these investigations. This is wonderful because they know how to work with experiencers. So that's one avenue. Uh, that member, that investigator will contact you. Uh, he or she will be looking for evidence. If you have evidence that can be examined in a scientific laboratory, then they will want that. Uh, if you have photographs of marks that you found on your body uh, that are unusual patterned marks, uh, then we'll want to collect your photographs if you have fluorescence on your skin in unusual patterned marks, seen with a black light in a dark room, we'll want you to photograph that and do that uh, without turning on the light and without using a flash. Uh, so that is part of the evidence. We'll work with you on how to come uh, collect your skin samples, uh, perhaps to be analyzed in a scientific laboratory as well maybe DNA samples, uh, a number of different things. So that is one route that you will take. The investigator uh, will write a report on what he or she found, and um, they will let you look at the report. Uh, at least I do. I let people look at the report I wrote uh, to make sure that it is accurate uh, and I would never write anything that I didn't want anyone to be able to read. My background in social work taught me that. So, um, and they will also write an ERT report based upon their conversation with you as that second hat they were wearing, ERT. The other road that you can take is to go to MUFON's website, MUFON.com, Scroll down to experience a research team, click on uh, talk with a member of the ERT. And when you do that, at the top of the page that comes up, you will see take the experience or questionnaire. You'll take the questionnaire either way. But if you do it the second way, you won't have an investigation. And you might want that if you don't have evidence, if you just want to talk to somebody who will be kind and supportive and non-judgmental. You take the questionnaire, Dr. Medich will assign um, someone like Chad to work with you and just to talk with you, not to do an investigation and a CMS, case management system investigation report. So you have two different routes that you can follow. That's very good. So um, in the case of Chad and MUFON Canada, just to let you know, we do things a little different up here because we're not as big. We're just a little over 50 people, which is just a little about the same size as the ERT team uh, mm -hmm. in, in the U.S. and MUFON International. But our investigators also investigate the case. We don't bring in a second investigator. So our ERT member investigator does both jobs. So depending on which way they go um, depends on what Chad would have to do. But the most important thing I want to bring up, and I've seen Chad do this many times, is we're here to listen and listen very well. And, and an ERT member like Chad reaches out and talks to this person. Um, so it's not just about the research, which I have to you know emphasize, it's very important to have. But mm -hmm. we are here to listen and help 
Uh, and Chad, as I said, is our ERT manager to make sure that our ERT investigators do provide this service as much as we can. Um, we're not doctors, we're not psychiatrists, but at least we have a list of, as you said, sources that we can refer them to. And we're enhancing that uh, every time we find a new source and, and a new way that we, we can offer assistance. So uh, we are out of time and I'm going to thank Chad very much for hosting this. Uh, this has been very informative. I'm pretty sure we'll probably have you back in about six months, Kathleen, because I know we're going to get a lot of comments and good comments. And so far, our podcasts have brought a lot of interesting questions. Um, we will be doing podcasts uh, right through the end of the summer and put them up every every couple weeks. And, uh, you know, I look forward and I encourage our, our viewers to watch every one of them. Uh, we have some very interesting guests, very interesting guest hosts. Uh, all being our field investigator in Canada. Uh, we will be also featuring witnesses from cases that want to come on and discuss their situation. Maybe they will be an experiencer. But we have two or three people lined up now who want to come on and talk about their experience and or their UFO sighting. So uh, thank you very much to both of you. Chad, thank you very much for the incredible questions. Kathleen, incredible information, very informative. And uh, we look forward to having you back. Can't wait. Look forward to it. And thank okay. you for letting me talk about what I do at the Mutual UFO Network. Oh, good. Thank you very much. Thanks, all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.